Well, then I'll make sure this won't be the longest episode ever. <laughs> well, we do have a time limit because, uh, you know, Elle's coming, whether, yes. <laughs> whether we like it or not. So <clears throat> she doesn't like it when I'm late. Oh, I, yes. She, my, from my one phone conversation with her, it is very clear she is a woman of punctuality. <laughs> Which is good. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not that style. So, yeah. yeah here we good. are. Two fifteen. It's good to have those people in my life. <laughs> I mean, we're not that far behind. This no, is the no. First time you're recording at your house. It's and, true. You know, lots of things to set up. It's all good. Okay. Um, I really don't expect this to go more than an hour recording. So, okay. Know, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see. Maybe that was last question. Yeah. <laughs> This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am joined by Josh Bosset to examine Esther's plan for getting into the king's throne room and what she is actually trying to accomplish once she's there. Yes, that is right. And um, kind of true to what uh, we did last time I was on the podcast, um, this whole episode is basically going to be me disagreeing with Marty. Uh, last time it was about Moses and the Rock. This time, it's about... Um, it's actually not a huge issue with what Marty said back in the Esther episode. Um, it was when Marty was talking about how, you know, God doesn't really show up a ton in Esther or at all in Esther. And um, Marty pointed to like, you know, the king's sleepless night where he, you know, can't sleep and uh, asked to to read the, uh, the uh, you know, national records and reacquaints himself with uh, what Mordecai did, you know, this huge turning point in the story and says, Hey, you know, maybe that was God that woke him up and, you know, made him pick that book and, you know, whatever else. But the only problem with that is that if that's true, then it, it ends up undermining like the, the whole theme of Esther because God's silence really works as a theme. If, especially if we're thinking about, you know, a people who are living in exile in Persia uh, or whatever audience is reading this, they're hearing this as people in exile. And so, you know, God being silent is a pretty big part of their lives. And if like the turning point of the plot ends up becoming God just kind of showing up after having not communicated with them and then saving the day, it kind of just says, yeah, you know, God is going to be silent. God isn't going to communicate to you. And, uh, ultimately, you know, you can't do anything about that. So we we talked about this all the way back in episode 70. So yes. if you need to, you might want to go back and refresh because if you were listening in real time, that was like four years ago. Yeah. And even if you're not in real time, it's still 180 episodes ago. So <laughs> um, no hard feelings. If you want to pause this episode and go back and listen to that just so you can juxtapose or listen after whatever. And I will say like, I, I think in large part, I, I'll end up agreeing with like Marty's big points. I don't think he's wrong about that. It's a great episode. You should listen to it. The previous episode was about Purim specifically, not not like the details of the story like this. Right. But the, the interesting thing is that the, the, the idea of the Purim, which, you know, is, as you pointed out in the episode, is kind of a weird thing to name the holiday that's commemorating this book because it's it's, it's a little bit of a um, kind of black humor, I guess, naming this holiday after after the 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 dice that were rolled uh you know to to, to decide right. when the jewish people would die um and that's really where i feel like you know if we just take all the the um the things that appear to be coincidence and just say maybe god just showed up and did it all it kind of ends up playing into that that vision of like oh yeah our, our 
lives in exile are just controlled by a roll of dice. You know, we're, we're, we're in Haman's hands. We're in the king's hands. Maybe God will show up and save us. Maybe God won't. Who knows? <clears throat> and that's really not what's going on here. Um, and uh, in fact, as we'll see, and as you alluded to in the opening, uh, Esther had a lot more uh, intention and agency in, in what happens and how things shake out. She, she turns out to be a pretty, a pretty uh, cunning and wise woman as we'll find out. Maybe no surprise, really, considering how we continue to examine people in the Bible. And basically, everyone seems to be a lot smarter than we initially think. Yeah, there's a lot going on with this book, you know. <laughs> but uh, in order to like really dig into uh, what Esther's doing, we kind of have to start uh, a little bit before that point in time when she, you know, bravely enters the courtroom. Um, we're all very familiar with that part of it. Um but to just set up the context that we're going to need to look at what Esther is doing once she steps in that courtroom, once she, you know, takes this huge act of faith and um, puts her life on the line for the sake of her people, what happens next is something that's not very easy to understand. And uh, so the pieces of context we're going to need are we're going to need to know the uh, the major, like, players in this narrative. Um, probably the first one we should talk about is the king, King Ahasuerus. Quite, quite a name. Yes, quite a mouthful. <laughs> I'm glad you got to say it first. Yes, that is the like, um, L, L will probably say it much cooler, but that's like the um, American phonetic Hebrew saying of the name. <laughs> um, it probably sounds even cooler if you have the, the correct accent. But yes, Ahasuerus. Um, he is, uh, well, so what we know about the king, we're, we're going to kind of do like a little psychological profile here. So, you know, in the Bible, even though we have a lot of dialogue, we don't, we don't get any internal monologues. We don't always know what people are thinking and what people are thinking and what's going on inside them is usually best seen through what they do or how they talk to other people. So what do, what do we know about King Ahasuerus? Like, what do you remember about his character? Uh, pff, nothing. Well, what, okay, what does he do? He's, he's, he doesn't really stick out to me. <laughs> he doesn't stick out. And I, I have a theory why, and this is another thing I disagree with Marty on, but like, what's the first thing that happens? He throws his feast, right? Yeah. And it's very obvious that it's about like him looking good to his, his friends and his subjects. And, you know, like these, these, um, people that were probably nobles in, in various parts of his kingdom. Typical behavior for a king, I would think. Right. That doesn't set him apart too much, but, um, while he's doing this, um, he, you know, of course, there's the incident with Vashti, right? And um, and to me, like what what I hear when I when I see all this stuff, there, there's two things that jump out at me. One is that he's um, Marty points out that he's very image conscious. I actually am going to put a little bit different of a twist on it. I think Ahasuerus is kind of insecure, right? Like he's brought everyone into into town to show them how cool this stuff is, and then like seven days in, he's like, I, I want to show you my my hot wife and it's like you know like dude like what are you doing like it's it's i don't know um you know it, it's not always easy to know like what the kind of cultural vibe would have been uh back in their day and that may have been braggadocious but it's like you can definitely see that he's trying to impress his friends right right yeah. and he's a king like at the end of the day um i don't know it, it to me it comes off as a little insecure especially because one of the other patterns for his character is that, um, and I think part of the reason why you don't get a lot of uh, character there, he's a, he's kind of flat, is that he he does pretty much what everyone tells him to do. 
like the whole thing with Vashti happens. He doesn't get um, like, like he, he doesn't uh, uh, make this decision to make this decree. The, the guys around him kind of pump him up to do it. They're like, you know, Hey, like this is going to make all of us look bad. Uh, you should, you know, issue this decree. And so what I see in that is this guy who's insecure and is, you know, trying to kind of um, make sure he doesn't look dumb to the people around him. And I think that's because he is kind of dumb. Marty <laughs> thinks he's really smart. I think he's kind of dumb. I think, he, you know, he just seems to be this guy who's going around. He's he's insecure and he's kind of dumb. And so that makes him very pliable, which is important because literally I don't think there's anyone who talks to King Ahasuerus asks for something that he doesn't do like just exactly what that person says. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. And in fact, to Marty's point about him being image conscious, there's one really important part right after he issues the decree where he's like, there's literally this scene. It's very cinematic where him and Haman are um, having like a, a, a wine feast together and they're drinking and like, you know, toasting each other for uh, making this law to uh, uh, kill all the Jews and take all their stuff. And it says the city is in an uproar, but they are like sitting there drinking wine. So there's this like, you know, King Akashvaros, <laughs> who's, you know, if he's so image minded, he really doesn't get how PR works. Like he doesn't get how people see him. He's only he's like looking at the person from him. he's like, oh, man, Heyman probably thinks I'm cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, kind of toasting their successes. Everyone around them is like, what the heck is going on? So. That's my read on King Ahasuerus. I'm going to try not to get too much in the details because as we'll see, especially when we get into like the Remezes, there's just so many, there's so much detail here that we could pull apart. I'm going to try really hard not to because I'm a very detail oriented person. So I'm going to leave it at that with King Ahasuerus. <laughs> that, that's what everyone's here for, Josh. So don't be afraid to to get into the weeds know, a little bit it, if, you, it, if you're inspired. Even if I, after I was, uh, even just as I was going over like my notes on this teaching, um, one of the big uh, things, Marty mentions this in the original episode, but one of the big themes for this book is Joseph. Like once you start thinking about the Joseph story and this story, things just pop out all over the place from the hidden identity to, you know, being being second under the king to like, and, and it's not just one person. Haman is very much like Yosef. Mordecai is very much like Yosef. Also, Esther has moments where she's very much like Yosef. So if we chase down every single one of those, we would be like looking at multiple chiasms layered on top of each other. It's insane. So we're not going down that path. <laughs> I would love to, but it would take like, you know, eight podcasts. So <laughs> we're going to go through these kind of quickly. So uh, that's King Ahasuerus. That's kind of in the background here. Um, as we talked, or as Marty talked about, and you talked about in the original episode, um, you know, we're talking about a book that's uh, speaking from like, you know, this uh, place of like kind of political scheming. So the king is an important part of that. But um, the real players in this story who have a lot of character are Mordecai and Haman. And uh, we're going to start with Mordecai, just like the book does. And um, right from the get go, just from his name, we already know a good chunk about him. Uh, for one thing, his name, Mordechai, uh, is going to make us think Babylon, because Mordechai, the, the root word Marduk, uh, Marduk was the patron saint of uh, Babylon, uh, like the actual city itself. So when we, but, but we're not in Babylon anymore, right? This is taking place in, uh, in Persia, specifically in Susa, in the capital. So, you know, we have this kind of uh, immediate reminder that, first of all, this isn't their, this isn't their first exile. And this probably isn't even 
Mordecai's first exile. He may have been born into the Babylonian exile and then like transitioned into this exile. Mm. And uh, all the, I, I won't go into the details, but a lot of the other um, kind of flavor we get from the names of his uh, fathers are, you know, it, it's about um, like hunting and scheming. Um, and actually we see this most perfectly in him just being a Benjamite because the blessing that's given over the Benjamites is that there'll be like a wolf that like gets a bite of its prey in the morning and then hunts it all day, you know, just tracking down this, you know, this poor deer or whatever, following the blood trail from the little nip he got. Yeah. And it says he, uh, the, the wolf that tastes its prey in the morning and, and feasts at night. So he's like, you know, he's patient, he perseveres, he endures. And, but there's this kind of scheming thing that he does. Um, and really what this paints is a picture of someone who thinks like in the like he isn't just a schemer. He thinks in the long term. He's patient, right? He's seen in exile. He knows that, you know, these things take a long time to to shape. And, and, you know, you don't know God's plan. One exile ends and you don't go home. You just go to another exile. I think it teaches you a lot about life. So is is the implication with the the wolf image that uh he is ultimately successful. Um, oh yeah. Because he is patiently hunting or yes. Is that not necessarily? Well, I mean, that's the blessing that's given. I mean, it doesn't mean that every Benjamite sure did that, but it, right. that was the the blessing. Like, you know, you're, you're like this wolf, you can do this. And I think Mordecai definitely lives up to that. And in fact, I think like his, like one of his, either his father, or his grandfather's name is related to the word for like a fish hook. So there's anyway, so there's just like a bunch of different, um, like the the character of his background kind of tells us like that that's who he is. He's he's uh yeah, he's this like patient hunter. He's also like kind of an exile veteran. He he's been around the block. He he's not thinking just in terms of this exile. He knows that these things can last for a long time. And one of the other things we see throughout the book if you look at his story is that like he really is a leader of the people. Um like there's a number of times where it says like he just talks to like the the um diaspora of jews in persia and they like just follow him like it's a very there's no moses thing where the people are complaining and mordecai is trying to appease them and you know work the king it's like the the people are with mordecai he's a he's a good leader like that's what we're being told he's a good leader he's a savvy political operator uh, i'm hearing you say he's better than moses <laughs> he's better at some things than moses i don't know if he could have uh <laughs> if he could have uh, gone up on the mountain, but you know, uh, every, everyone's got a little bit of a different role. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I know I, I dunked on Moses a lot last time, but Moses is pretty good. You know, he gave us the Torah. That, that was, that's something that's worth something, right? <laughs> he does show up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Mordecai does not. So I guess that's, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. Moses may be a little bit higher than Mordecai, <laughs> but, um, but instead of just talking about him in the abstract, let's jump into like the actual thing he does. So he kind of maneuvers his adopted daughter into position as the queen. We're just going to kind of skip that whole chunk of the narrative. He puts her in place. And why does he do this? Does he have like a strategy or a plan? Well, we kind of get a story immediately after she is uh, made queen, Esther is, that kind of helps us understand a little bit of what his, like, his M.O. is. And that is what we're going to see in chapter two. If you go ahead and read that chunk. Yeah. Um, in those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, Big Thin, <laughs> that's probably right, <laughs> and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. 
But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Yes. So Esther's in place. And then quite fortuitously, Mordecai becomes made aware of an assassination plot. And uh, as we can see, his like what he does with that information, like he could do anything with it. Um, and I think maybe a question we could ask here is like, why does he why is he protecting the king? Like, does he like this guy? Why? Why would you protect this uh, this king that's you know keeping your people in exile? And I think that's where like I, I kind of like to read King Ahasuerus as like a pliable figure because it would make sense that they're like, yeah, you know, we kind of want. <laughs> We want someone like that in the position. We don't really want a a, a guy with maybe a, a strong political agenda <laughs> as the king. We kind of like this this dude that's just happy to to you know have his wine feasts and and uh, you know have have uh, beautiful women attend to him and and you know just kind of uh, that that's that's probably a pretty comfortable place and safe place for them to be in. Um, but the real like brilliance of this is that like the fact that his and Esther's connection is hidden means that they kind of both get credit for uncovering this plot. Cause Esther is the one who brings the information to the King. Right. And she gives it to the King in Mordecai's name. Uh, and so they kind of get like double credit, which is, you know, brilliant politically. They kind of both have a card to play in terms of being in the King's favor. Right. So there wouldn't be an assumption that Esther has some sort of connection to Mordecai or is no the assumption no, I... more that like, Oh, I've, happened to or Mordecai happened to come to me and I'm passing this on or right yeah I mean and that's where we're not given all those details but yes I mean their, their connection is not known and like that's that's a big part of the plot is that she it, I mean they know that Mordecai is a Jew they don't know that Esther is a Jew so maybe maybe you know maybe it's uh maybe some people observe that they they have some sort of connection but I, I really doubt it they seem like they they emphasize in the book how they keep their communication very secret. So um, really, it does seem like she was like, hey, I heard from, you know, th this person made me aware of a plot and I'm bringing it to you. So then, you know, Esther is in the king's good graces and Mordecai is, um, even though they're on the same team. No one else knows that. And uh, that's where uh, I want you to read the verse right after that, which is well, that that's the end of chapter two. So read the very beginning of chapter three. And I want you to listen for like, if, if there's anything that sounds off and we're going to stop after verse one. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All right. So what stood out to you there is maybe... <laughs> So who's this guy and what did he do to get promoted? <laughs> right, exactly. We have a story and they say, oh, look, uh, you know, uh, Mordecai and Esther did this great thing. They scored a touchdown. They have, they have a nice, big, juicy political card in their hand that they can play. It's like officially recognized. And then, therefore, the king promotes Haman. Who's this guy? <laughs> he really does kind of interrupt the story. <clears throat> and we are left to question where he comes from. Um and this is something I'll get into in a minute, but, um, yeah, his, uh, his name, it tells him he's, his name is Haman, which is usually translated as like glorious. Uh, if I remember correctly, Hamadata, his father's name literally means like two-faced. And then the whole Agagite thing, we're going to have to unpack that later, but that becomes very important. Either way, 
what we get right off the bat from Heyman is that like, yeah, he kind of just appears on the scene. We don't even know how much time's passed between chapter two and chapter three. I do think the way I read it is that there is a significant amount of time, but the way you read it, I think it is supposed to kind of surprise you that it's Haman being advanced rather than Mordecai. Yeah, this is the very first mention of his name in the book of Esther. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three chapters in, and he just, here he is. It's Haman. Um, now go ahead and uh, I want to read, uh, yeah, read, read the next couple verses, and um, I'll stop you because we, we need to talk a little bit more about Mordecai before we get into Haman. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? And I think that's a great question. Why Why is he transgressing the king's command? That doesn't make a lot. What happened to the savvy political operator? Yeah, yeah, that's not going to score him a lot of points. Yeah. So what the heck is Mordecai thinking? Now, there's a, uh, we could get a lot into the rabbinic conversation. One of the big rabbinic theories is that um, Haman would like wear an idol around his neck. And so Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him because, you know, he, he would be bowing down to an idol at the same time. Um. And I kind of don't buy that because, I mean, I don't know. It, it could be true, but it's like his name's Mordecai. He's literally named after a, a foreign god. Like, I don't know. He he doesn't, I mean, he entered his daughter into a sex contest like they talked about last time. I'm like, you know, this is where he draws the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, <laughs> not where you would expect him to make a stand. Yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> we're going to hang on to this and try and un- we'll have to understand Haman more to understand why, but I think we need to recognize here that Mordecai, once Haman shows up, Mordecai starts acting really weird. Like he he's taking this big L doing something very unpopular for what reason? What's he benefiting from this too? It's like he's standing on his principles now for no conceivable benefit that that's obvious in the text. And, uh, yeah, why would he be doing that? Well, okay, let's keep I, reading. I mean, this. if if there is a chunk of time that has passed since then, mm-hmm. I could see him being like, okay, I'm the one who, you know, stuck my neck out, went to the queen, made sure you didn't get killed. Mm -hmm. And and what did I get for that? Nothing. And so he's bitter (laughs) and he's like, oh, well, whatever. I'm not going to bow down to you. Like, who cares? Like, apparently I can't get anywhere in this kingdom. So what do I have to lose? You know, I might as well die. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So there uh, a lot of what I mean, some of what you obviously all that's conjecture, but to, to speak to one part of it, I think what you said there, like if there is a gap, like maybe he's thinking like he has the clout to just kind of, um, ignore this, this young upstart Haman. He doesn't have to pay attention to him. He's, he's, he's got his bona fides. That's kind of the vibe I get. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think there's another layer down, but we got to keep reading. So why don't you, uh, keep reading that little chunk. Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. There's a couple interesting things here. So first of all, Haman didn't even notice at first. Like they have to tell him that Mordecai is blowing him off, which to me says that 
Like, you know, Mordecai scored some points, but he's probably not like foremost in the court. Like, again, we have to remember this is Persia, right? Like this is a massive empire. He represents one probably relatively small people group. So he's in the king's good graces, but I don't think he's like, you know, he's not the the big guy in in the courtroom. Um, like, like they said here, uh, Haman doesn't get mad until after the other courtiers tell him. And, uh, but, uh, without, uh, you know, kind of moving on to the Haman side of this, what do we learn about Haman? This young, this, this guy whose star is on the rise for sure. What, what does this little passage tell you about his character? Well, he seems a little insecure about it. Yeah, a little in, in, in terms a of little him little freaking insecure. out. <laughs> yeah. him, uh, oh, you're yes. not going to bow down to me? I'm going to destroy your entire people group. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we kind of see that ambition there, too, where it's like he isn't... Um, he is he doesn't have his sights set on just like i'm gonna respond to this and deal with this problem it's like i'm gonna do it in the most like in the the wildest way you can kind of just see this unbridled ambition and at the same time like you said this complete like um insecure emotionality that he just like instantly breaks out in rage and is like all right i'm gonna do (laughs) i'm gonna do an entire genocide yeah not a proportional response not not a man of wisdom or you know, anything like that. Somehow this guy's rocketed to the top and we're going to see how in a, it, uh, or actually I'll, I'll just describe it in a second. But the other thing I want to point out here is just how short term his thinking is, right? We talked about how Mordecai kind of has this long term, like he's kind of trying to build a political structure so that he can protect his people and kind of manage their time in exile as best he can, as best he can lead them through it. And Haman, we just see it's like he's, he's rocketed to the top. He has some sort of capacity for being good at this stuff but um it's certainly not it, it, that that certainly doesn't come from a place of him being a uh like uh, a subtle person <laughs> the other thing that's really interesting here because i mean mordecai kind of messes up here right he like you said maybe he thinks he has a card to play he thinks he's safe with a king so he can um you know uh just kind of blow this guy off but it's very much a mistake because not only not only does it irk Haman and and bring on this you know rageful response, but in addition, the reason he gives to explain it also communicates who his people group are. He says, "I can't bow down to this because I'm a Jew," which is ends up being why Haman, <laughs> because he has that information. The text underlines like because he knew who his people were, he was able to <laughs> to be like, "All right, we're just going to kill all of them because that pisses me off." So. Like Mordecai really does make a misstep here. Um, like it really just does seems like he overplays his hand. But why? Like, I mean, I think we can we could draw a parallel between like um Haman versus the the existing king, where it's like, yeah, you know, I, I would rather have King Ahashverosh be king over me than King Haman. That sounds insane, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the king the kingdom would fall apart instantly. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it, and it would be like, you know, you, you don't want to be anywhere near the courtroom because, you know, you cough the wrong way and, and it's like your entire family is just going to be catapulted into the ocean or something, something awful. Um, the other thing that's really interesting and, and here, so here's my theory about what Mordecai's thought is, because I, I don't think he was just like, ah, I get no respect around here. I'm, I, I should, I should be able to ignore this guy. I think he actually doesn't believe that the commandment is real because when it says when it when it tells us what the um it tells us that that uh if we go back all the way to verse one 
uh, we were told that Haman is promoted, that he's advanced, his authority established over everyone, you know, again, a very Joseph thing. He's kind of put right under the king. And it says that the king had commanded everyone bow down. But the way it's worded in the Hebrew, it says, um, everyone had to bow down and pay homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded, and then it uses the Hebrew word lo, which is a, a preposition, which could mean about or like for, or it's usually translated concerning him. So that's what the king commanded about Haman. But you could also read it as that's what the king commanded to Haman. So there's a possibility that you read this where basically Haman's like, you know, in with the king, their buddy, buddy, and Haman comes out and says, hey, guess what, everybody, the king commanded that you all have to bow to me. The king commanded that to me, and I'm telling it to you now. And if you're, you know, Mordecai, maybe you hear that and you think, there's no way. There's no, there's no way, way the king actually said that. <laughs> oh, the king just happened to tell you that we're all supposed to bow to you. Like, sure, buddy. Okay. I'm I'm blowing you off. <laughs> and especially when we see how, like, destructive Haman is. Like, I, I doubt that he was able to hide what kind of a person he was in that respect. So maybe Mordecai saw and said, this guy is dangerous. He's a, But he's a flash in the pan. His star is rising quick. He's going to be out of here. I'm just going to call his bluff and say, the king didn't say that to you. I'm not going to bow down. Besides, I don't have to because I'm a Jew. And, you know, and I'm, I already have, I'm in the good graces of the king. So what's this guy going to do to me? <laughs> and uh, we learned very quickly what uh, Haman is going to do to him. And we really see Haman's brilliance right after this. I'm not going to have us read through the whole thing because it's quite long, but basically um, we see that Haman's like ability to hold sway with the king is one. He, um, you know, just kind of uses the force of his personality and it, he's, he's a talker, right? He, he kind of um, gets the king to believe in this kind of fairy tale that he whips up about a mysterious people group that, that don't follow the laws and, you know, really just stretches the situation and kind of just um, creates a political narrative that the king buys into. And not only that, we learned that um, he's fantastically wealthy. Well, and we just, we established earlier that he, uh, the king specifically is, uh, is fairly impressionable. So, Exactly. You, do, exactly. you don't even have to be that good of a storyteller to get the king <laughs> on your side. Yes. And we see, we end up seeing the other side of this, which is that um, Haman is also incredibly wealthy. Um, he like, literally that's the linchpin is he says, I'll pay, you know, X amount of money. I'll pay you like X millions of dollars. If you give this people over to me to kill and steal their possessions. And the king's response is literally like, Hey, the, the money you're giving me is yours. Now the people are yours. Do whatever you want. <laughs> so, um, uh, Haman is also coming into this with a lot of like, you know, personal wealth, um, which is a great way to get ahead in politics or really any field. Um, just for all the listeners out there being rich, it really helps. It goes a long way. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, end up yeah, seeing... the secrets of the universe here on the Bay <laughs> yes. <Wolf> podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're breaking new ground. Um, but, uh, what's really interesting about, um, Haman's revenge plot, like it, this ends up kind of showing us one, how dangerous Haman is, where it's just like he, he has seemingly unlimited resources and he also has the king like wrapped around his finger, which is a big problem, right? Like, especially when we see what kind of person he is, what Mordecai, uh, learns, uh, about what he's willing to do and, and what his, his rage looks like. I, I think you can really see one, why Mordecai didn't, uh, didn't really care to uh, be in this guy's good graces from the beginning. 
But it also shows us like how dangerous of a threat he is. And especially as things go on, one of the things you notice about Haman is he really wants to be king. Like he really wants to be king. I mean, obviously there's the classic scene where the king's like, what should we do for the person the king wants to honor? And he's literally like, I want to wear the king's hat. I want to wear the king's clothes. I want to wear the king's underwear. And I want to, and, and he even has, you know, of course the famous Freudian slip where he kind of uh, almost says directly that he wants to have sex with the king's queen. So there's like, he definitely sees himself in the king's uh, position. He could see himself on that throne. And uh, so I think that that's where we have to understand that like Haman's ambition here shouldn't be seen as like this just kind of inert thing. Like there's a real possibility that, you know, maybe he wants to take this thing over himself, especially if he has that kind of wealth. You know, who knows? Maybe he's attached to some uh, old royal line. And in fact, he is. Um why don't we go ahead and read 1 Samuel 15? And this will also give us a little context as to why there's a conflict between Mordecai and Haman that just kind of happens automatically, kind of without them seeming to have any history. Let's read this passage in 1 Samuel and, and hear a little bit more about that history. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Mm, very interesting. So if, if we'll remember, Saul is a Benjamite, and Mordecai is a Benjamite, and what was Haman again? Haman, son of Hamadatah, and... Agagite. An Agagite. And this is the only other place in the text where we really see anyone named Agag. So, and, and isn't this ironic too, that uh, be, because Saul uh, conquered this guy and didn't destroy him like he was supposed to, and this is kind of the like final mistake Saul makes after this, Samuel literally just never talks to him again. <laughs> And uh, he keeps all the nice stuff and like literally he follows God's command until he's like, oh, wait, this is nice. I want to keep this. And in fact, you know, he, he keeps this king named Agag alive, who is the king of the Amalekites, who, if we'll remember, are the people that God said, we need to blot them out because their their whole thing is that they, when, when Israel was in the desert, they came and attacked the weakest and among them and, you know, the stragglers, the old people, the children at the back of the line. So this is not a good person. <laughs> I, I really love Samuel's sass. This is a total aside, but I love Samuel's sass because Saul comes back to him, and uh, and and or uh, Samuel shows up, and and Saul says, "The Lord bless you. I, I have carried out the Lord's instructions." <laughs> and Samuel says, "What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear?" <laughs> Yes, exactly. Saul's like, just got like money coming out of his pockets. He's like, oh yeah, I totally got rid of all that stuff for God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the crazy thing to me too, is that he keeps the king alive. He kills all the people, but he keeps the king alive. It's like, it, almost in this, we see kind of a reflection of Haman's ambition where it's like Saul wants to make friends with other kings um, rather than, rather than uh, uh, put this guy to death as God told him to. And maybe like, if I have the reputation of sparing the kings, if someone ever conquers me, they'll spare me. <laughs> right, like exactly. A, a self-protection insurance plan. Exactly. He's like, I don't want the other kings to think I'm like not a nice guy. I wanna... <laughs> we, we really see what Saul's priorities are here. And it's like perfectly reflected here. Now, like in Haman, we have someone who is super 
uh, uh, ambitious. And, um, and, and really, you know, we, we know that if Haman did descend from, uh, King Agag and then hence is called an Agagite, literally it's like Haman wouldn't have existed if Saul had done his job. <laughs> and, uh, Mordecai being a Benjamite, like you're already, like if you're an original audience, you, you hear these two names and, and this conflict is inevitable. Like, of course, Mordecai is going to have to beef it out with Haman. And therefore it's like, you don't even really need an explanation for why you don't bow to him because it's like, you know, it's on site. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta take care of this problem. This is, this is, uh, yeah, like I said, an inevitable conflict. Um, the other interesting thing about this part um, is if you'll notice, and, and again, this is this speaks to why we can't get into all the details. Um, one of the interesting things when Haman is, you know, figuring out his plot when he's tossing the poor, the purim, the lots, um, and they they fall on a specific day, and very luckily, the day that they fall on is like almost a year uh, from when he throws the dice. Uh, which I mean, maybe that's God stepping into the story, but. Um, Either way, uh, the the day he brings it to the king and says, like, this is the day I want to do it, you know, at the end of this year is literally the day before Passover. Mm. <laughs> and so, like, when the people are hearing this, it's literally like on Passover, you're thinking about freedom. And then you're like, uh, oh, no, guess what? It's Pharaoh throwing everyone into the Nile. <laughs> you're, you're all going to die. Um, so there's a lot of like j- just I, I, like, I, don't, I won't even press into that one because there's just so much we could talk about there but there's a lot of layers to this book is all i'm trying to say yeah we are about 40 minutes in and we haven't actually gotten to esther's plan for getting into the throne room so <laughs> yes but we've laid the groundwork actually we this have, is the perfect yes. moment because this is all that you need to know we have we have haman we have mordecai we have this this you know generations long conflict that is going to be resolved and we have mordecai making a mistake overplaying his hand and haman taking the upper hand. So um, again, we're going to skip over a bunch of texts, the conversation between Esther and Mordecai. And there's, there's so much in there that we could talk about um, and about like, especially about how Mordecai, like, you know, like I talked earlier about how, like his leadership of the people, like we, we could spend a while looking at, at how that happens and the difference between him and Esther. But I'm going to skip all the way to what like Esther in the courtroom, she already did the thing, you know, for such a time as this. And, um, She's standing in front of the king, and we quickly see that Esther's plan, like, it, it doesn't really make sense. She says, like, I, I want you to come to a wine feast. But but she says something very interesting before that. Um, most translations are going to put it as, like, um, uh, uh, like, you know, some kind of honorific, like, uh, uh, long live the king, or may it be well with the king, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, in... In like literal Hebrew, what she says, if it will be good for the king. And um, what's interesting about this phrase is that it's not what most people use when they're talking to the king. It's a phrase that's specifically used two other times in this book beforehand. And it's when uh, someone is trying to get the king to to do something. It happens with his friends when they're trying to get the king to um, outlaw Vashti and make it so that, you know, no wives can can uh, pull the stunt that Vashti pulled. Um and it's used by Haman when he's trying to convince the king to to sell him the Jewish people. So Esther starts out going in saying, uh, you know, this phrase, this kind of like, if it will be good for the king, kind of like as close to, as you can get to telling a king like, hey, if you know it's good for you, you should do this. Um, and then she says, come to come to this party I'm going to throw. So 
we hear that and we go like, wait, what? That's the plan? Get him to a, a feast? Why? What does that do? <laughs> and um, I th- what I think what what I'm going to call this is uh, that Esther's plan is brazen silence. I mean, it's obviously very brazen that she even dared to enter the king's chamber, um, but it's really her silence here that is the entire plan. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but if you're the king and Esther comes to you. And she's not even supposed to come to you. She, like, comes when she's not supposed to. And she has something to tell you. And then she uses this phrase, if it's going to be good for you, like, you you got to do something. But let's have a feast. Like, what are you thinking if you're the king? Um, why why would I go to somebody else's feast? I'm going to throw a better feast. You, okay, sure. You could go that direction. But uh, let's think about this time. What's the last, uh, like, Esther has something important to say, Right. What's the last time Esther had something really important to say to you? He was about to die. Yeah, there was an assassination plot. And now she says, there's something I really got to tell you. Something so important I got to tell you. I got to break a rule that would endanger my own life to tell you something, King. Something that is like actionable, that you need to do something about. That if it's going to be well for you, you need to do something. And then she just, she doesn't tell him what it is. She says, I got to talk to you about it in private. So if I'm the king, my first thought is like, wait, she can't tell me in public. She can't even just tell me like in my own court. So is the assass- is, is is another assassination plot? Is it someone in the court? What's going on? Why can't she tell me? Yeah. And if you'll notice, the, the king, um, his whole attitude after she tells him that is he uses words like immediately and hate, like it's all speed. He's like, okay, well, let's go have this. Let's go have this feast right now. <laughs> I want to hear what happens. On the other hand, if you're Haman and you hear there's a private wine feast with the king, Esther, and you get invited, like, what are you thinking if you're Haman? What are you feeling? Um, probably that, well, I don't know. I feel like it could go a couple different ways. It could be good or bad. I'm not sure. Either Either he's thinking like, oh, this is... Like I, I'm, I'm getting a private audience with the king, and I'm special. Or mm-hmm. they're about to tell me something, and I'm about to be removed of everything that I have. Well, see, here's the thing. So, th- and this is where um, I, I, I like the the I'm special line because if we think about what's happening to Haman, it's been all wins, right? He he's like elevated by the king. That's the first thing that happens to him. Then some guy steps to him in the court, and he successfully like ended that guy's life and the life of all his people. Like you're on a string of wins and then you get invited to like a VIP uh, a wine feast. You're probably like top of the world. And literally he goes home and he's like in a celebratory mood. He's like, nothing bad can happen to me. I'm the best. I'm the goat. Let's, uh, you know, let, let's make a fancy gallows to hang, <laughs> to hang Mordecai on. So he is, if anything, way overconfident. So just by, not saying anything and presenting this feast, Esther has fed into Haman's ambition and fed into the king's insecurity and fear. Then they have the the feast immediately. Esther still won't tell him and says, let's have another private conversation with you, me, and Haman. And that, it's after that, that the king can't sleep. I wonder why he can't sleep. (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> like, right, I right. wonder why you can't sleep if you're worried that like, not just like, there's a, there's a plot at least as bad as an assassination plot. Esther can't tell you in front of the court. Esther can't even tell you what it is in front of your second in command. Like, what do you do with that as the king? Yeah. And so what does the king do? He says, hey, bring me the records of the last time I was assassinated <laughs> or someone tried to assassinate me, rather. That's what, like, he didn't just accidentally stumble upon this story. He's like, okay, wait, I got to do my homework. Who's tried to assassinate me recently? Who could have it out for me? That's why he goes to this story. Like, none of it's an accident. That is the result of Esther messing with the king, getting in his head. So the real thing that I think Esther is doing is the, the key is that she invites Haman as well. And this is what makes it like so beautifully simple because Haman thinks he's being included because he's special. And what Esther is actually telling the king is like, you know, she can't just come out and say Haman's a bad guy. She can't directly accuse him because like, like what, even if she sh like shows the king evidence that Haman's a bad guy or that, um, Haman's ambitious and actually wants to be the king. Or even if she just like goes to like, even if she follows Mordecai's advice and just goes to the king and says, Hey, like, please don't, don't kill me and my people. You know, she just starts there. Then it's like the king has to pick sides and all this stuff. And, and rather than face that confrontation head on, she just goes and says like, Hey, maybe there's someone you can't trust in your courtroom. And then they're in private. And she's like, maybe there's someone you can't trust who's even closer to you than just a random person in your courtroom. Maybe the person you can't trust is cough, cough in the room with us right now. <laughs> right? Like, that's the thing. Like, she, like, why else invite Haman to both feasts and not say anything? Like, she's basically just putting the pieces there for the king. Like, hey, I'm here to tell you about another assassination attempt. And I can't really tell you the details because he's right there. And, yeah, you know, like... She is so she's basically like, not not subtle, but also just like smart, right? A, a smart teacher in that she's leading her student to his own discovery rather than setting it in front of him because he might reject it that way. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's why she, she can't even tell him what it is, because like as we end up seeing, he, he ends up like kind of thinking that um, Haman was like trying to to rape Esther or whatever. And, um, and that's where it's like, she really just lets the King's insecurity do her work for her. She's like, Oh, he's, he's insecure. Haman's overconfident. All I got to do is put him in a place where Haman is overconfident. And, and like we see, he has these Freudian slips where he's like, yeah, I want to, I want to be King. I want to be, <laughs> and, and she ends up painting the situation where Haman looks like he's trying, he, he's He's going to stage a coup or something that she's warning the King about. And, um, and it's just, it's just, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It really is brilliant. Like that's the, um, that's like the first layer of this. And and we could like, you know, talk about how great it is that there's this brilliant woman named Esther who saved her people. But like, what do we actually do with this? Cause you know, uh, we want to make sure we're leaving here with like a little bit more than just like, Hey, here's a fun fact about the Bible. Esther is actually way smarter than you thought, which is true. And, and is a worthy thing to reflect on, but there's something, and this actually credit goes to L because when I was digging through my new Jacenius lexicon, I found a very, very interesting um, possible meaning for Haman's name. Because you know we're, we're talking uh, names that come from possibly like Persian sources as well as Hebrew, so there's it's not necessarily straight through what Haman's name means. 
And uh, one of the things, one of the ideas that Jasenius toys with is Haman's name could also mean to be alone. And what I really like about that is that, like, you know, if I'm if I'm a Jew sitting in exile and I'm reading this story, like, it, it's cool to have a hero. It's cool to like have you know this this idea of an Esther. Uh, like maybe there's an Esther in your time who's gonna uh, you know save your people or whatever. But like in terms of the practical application, like what does this story actually mean to you if you're in exile? I want to bring it all the way back to the poor, to the poorium, to the the dice, right? Like the ultimate thing with the dice is that the fate of the Jewish people isn't in their hands. It's like it's it, it, is it up to chance? Or in, we're in exile. We we feel like our lives are constantly at the whim of people above us. And I don't know about you, but that's also like very relatable today. <laughs> and, uh, and in addition to that, you know, God's silent. God's not talking. You're in exile. You don't know for how long. You don't know if it's going to be your generation that gets to go home or the next one. Or like in the case with Esther, maybe you've chosen to be in exile and that's just, you know, that's your life. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about um, Esther and Mordecai is that throughout the book, like I mentioned, it talks about their leadership of the people of Israel. And not only that, it mentions a lot of names of servants when Esther and Mordecai are around. Like we know the name of the servant that's used to like get messages between Esther and Mordecai. Like we know we know the names of a lot of the, the like people that actually connect them and help them with, um, you know, with their political schemes. And what I... What I think this ends up being like a meditation on is that like there's Hamans in the world. There's people who can who can talk and who can lie and who can manipulate power and who have just, you know, all the money in the world. And it can feel like, you know, we're just waiting on on some miracle to save us. And I think the story of Esther, it, it isn't even about how brilliant Esther is or how brilliant Mordecai is, even though I think we could take lessons about, you know, like being smart and, you know, being, being wise as serpents. Um, I think what it underlines is like the, the fundamental wisdom of this book is that um, the Hamans of the world, it, it's not actually a dice roll. Like the dice are loaded. The, the dice... It's not that we have, you know, full control over all our lives. And if we just like, you know, <laughs> focused enough, we could manifest that. It, there's definitely a level at which we don't uh, have complete control of our lives. And sometimes it is a dice roll. But the dice are loaded such that um, the Hamans are going to uh, lose eventually. Because at the end of the day, Hamans alone. Like, the even even if we look at like the plan he had where basically a bunch of people were going to go kill all the Jews because they could take their stuff. Like those are all people showing up, you know, not because they particularly hate the Jews. Maybe they do. Um, but he gives them like a big money incentive. They're not there because they love Haman. They don't have Haman's back. They certainly don't have Haman's back when he's on his own gallows. Um, it's just him against the world, him and all his money and skill and power. And, at the end of the day, what really makes Esther and Mordecai's plan work, I mean, we, we could even look at like how this whole time that Esther is with the king, the whole nation of, of or the, the whole people of uh, of Israel, the, the, the Jews throughout the land are like praying and fasting for her. But like they have a community, like ultimately, like, you know, you, you can't 
you can't um, force yourself to be an Esther to be like able to do this brilliant thing. But like the most fundamental piece of wisdom is community. Like ha not just, you know, people that you hang out with, but people who you're like actually materially connected with that, that, you know, you, you are involved in each other's lives. You pour into each other. You're connected. That's what actually makes this work. It, there isn't uh, just a dice roll determining everything because when you have people around you, God's spirit finds a way to, to work its way into a situation, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting, like Haman, uh, he, he went, he went home and, you know, relayed the whole story to everyone there. And then he goes to the banquet by himself. Yes, he and does. Then, and then when the king decides, like, uh, it's over for this guy. And like, oh, well, he's already got this gallows that he made for Mordecai at his home. Yes. Yep. So they go back there and nobody comes out to defend him or anything. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and there's... Like, ugh. the depth of his aloneness is really profound at the end. And you know what's interesting? You could compare the response of his family after the first feast and the second feast. Because after the first feast, they're, they're all like, they're bigging him up. They're like, oh, heck yeah. Like, you're the best, Haman. No one can beat you. And then after the second one where he's like, oh, actually, the king wanted to favor Mordecai. I think it was actually before the feast. It was like between like before, right before the second feast. I think they're literally like, Oh, the King picked Mordecai over you. You're done. <laughs> like Literally his, his, like, I think his wife tells him to his face, like, Oh, you're going to fall now. <laughs> like there is no loyalty even between him and his wife. It's insane. He is yeah, so alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and what's beautiful too, is like, you know, like, you know, it, I, I'm not saying don't, you know, don't try and read God into this story. Although I, I will say from a narrative point of view, like if God was going to step in to a story with like a Josephy thing going on, like lots of Joseph motifs and God was trying to communicate to the king at night, you know, God would have sent him a dream. And I think like for our modern day where we really like, you know, we, we don't live and operate like, like God doesn't speak to us. We don't have any new, you know, gospels being written. We don't have any like new, uh, inspired works. We are living in an age where, where God is, uh, to some degree silent in that context. You're not saying the spirit doesn't do things, but it, it is a very different thing to like live in that context and to be looking and waiting for God to, to show up in a dream or whatever. Like that's, um, oh, actually let me back up. Cause that's not what I want to say. Um, like God's silence is something that we've all experienced. And it's not easy, you know, especially when we read stories where people get to hear from God really clearly and we see how much strength that gives them. And I think that what this book encourages us to do is that like, if we're going to make it out of this thing and actually like materially make kingdom a reality, we have to start with community and that that is the, that is the strength. That is how God actually ends up speaking and changing situations from total destruction to total salvation. Mm, I love it. Salvation. Salvation. In, in maybe the way, uh, maybe not in the way that we typically think of it. Yes. It's good. 
Uh, all right. Well, should we should we close it down? We we almost got an hour out of out of Esther. And, yeah, I know. Uh, we could we could go for long. Good. I have, I've got good. a lot of other stuff we could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> you want to do? Like I was um, just to give everyone another little nugget because I I love this one so much. Like Esther does everything like flipped. Like even you can even look at everything she does as a reflection of Vashti, right? Because Vashti was told to come to the king and doesn't. Esther isn't told to go to the king, but does. And like, there's, I don't know, there's just so many little things like that where you can just like, it, you just poke this little book a little bit and you'll see how much wisdom Esther has um, and how much wisdom the the writers of this book had to be able to put together such a narrative. Oh my gosh. I'm like talking way more than I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. This is a great book. You poke it a little bit and you'll just see all the great stuff in there. You should do that more. <laughs> well, so what the listeners should do is explore Esther a little bit. And then when they get stuck, they can join the Baymoth Slack mm-hmm. and pop over to the session six channel and they can be like, Josh, here's what I found. But what in the world is this? And, yes. uh, and then you'll, you'll get to, you know, share a little bit more. Yes. And the other thing all the listeners should do is go out. And start building community. Start start working together with other people around you to make something, to make kingdom real. Mm. That's the thing you got to do. I and maybe it. that's on Baymo Slack, or maybe it's in your life. Who knows? Yeah, hopefully, uh, maybe both. Maybe both. So. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty and, and tell him uh, how much you agree with Josh um, about his take on Esther, <laughs> you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Uh, Josh, you're not on Twitter, right? I'm but not you on are. Twitter. I've successfully Slack, Slack is the way. Slack, Slack is, the way. is the way. Or my new Baymont email. Oh yes. Whose name was inspired by Brent himself. This is a Brent original. It's <laughs> Midrash Josh at gmail.com. Yeah, yeah. So if you send me it. if you send me questions there, anything you want. I love answering questions. You can you can take up a lot of my time by asking me a juicy question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, uh, I will have uh, links for uh, episode 70 um, if you want to go back and listen to that, as well as uh, a link to join the Bama Slack in the show notes. And you can find other details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. did do an hour 315 on the dot (laughs) i'm not surprised (laughs) i know Ugh.